0: words I'd like to direct your attention to found once again in the book of Job we'll be looking at Job chapter 2 again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh and Satan also came among them to present himself, himself before Yahweh Yahweh said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered Yahweh and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it, Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered Yahweh and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now, touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So Yahweh said to Satan, behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of this adversity that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept and each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him for they saw that his pain was very great Lord we know that in engaging your word especially Job these are weighty things the whole the whole book testifies to the ignorance of man in regard to your sovereign plans and purposes. And so, Father, we even we even come confessing that there's so much about this this world that we don't understand, and that's why we need your help. We thank you that you've given us your word that we might have understanding. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding through your word. Lord, so that we would better know you and better be conformed to your likeness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Sorry, my voice is a little hoarse. And this morning, in 1994... Marshall Shelley, who is the editor-in-chief of Leadership Journal, wrote an article in Christianity Today entitled Two Minutes to Eternity. And the article narrates how he and his wife went into an ultrasound where they were told their baby had trisonomy 13, which is a chromosomal abnormality with no known cause, in which he described it in frank honesty this way. Quote, As far as I was concerned, this was a design flaw and the designer was directly responsible. The physician told them, it's likely the fetus will spontaneously miscarry. If the child is born, it will not survive outside the womb. You need to decide if you want to continue to carry this pregnancy to term. And months later, On November 22nd, they gave birth to a baby boy. He wrote, The doctor cut the cord and gently placed him on Susan's chest. He was a healthy pink. And we saw his chest rise and fall. The breath of life. Thank you, God. And then almost immediately, he began to turn blue. We stroked his face and whispered words of welcome, of love, of farewell. And all too soon, the doctor said, He's gone. Do you have a name for the baby? One of the nurses asked. Toby, Susan said. It's short for a biblical name, Tobiah. It means God is good. We had long thought about the name for this child, he writes. We didn't particularly feel God's goodness at that moment. The name was what we believed, not what we felt. It was what we wanted to feel someday. The words of C.S. Lewis describing the lion Aslan kept coming to mind, he writes. He's not a tame lion, but he's good. We clung to that image of untamed and fearsome goodness, even as we continued to struggle with the question, why would God create a child to live for just a few minutes? And that, that, that's essentially the same question that echoes throughout the book of Job. Why do you allow suffering, God? Why does Job experience such horrific suffering? Is it because Job has committed some secret sin that God is now just disciplining him for? Is it because God isn't really just and good or is it that God isn't sovereign he can't control Satan of course the readers have the benefit of knowing the answer and that's why we're given the, the benefit of this background in Job chapters 1 and 2 in order to realize that just because we don't understand why God allows things to happen doesn't mean he's not sovereign. It doesn't mean that he's not good. And in these first two chapters that narrate the horrific afflictions Satan pours out upon Job, Job exemplifies for us how we should respond in the midst of great suffering. Chapter 2 of Job follows the basic structure as chapter 1, and therefore we're going to follow essentially the same outline as last week. Where Job's faith is testified by God. It's then tested by Satan, proven in his words. And then we have a short narration when his friends arrive to comfort him. Let's look first at Job's faith being testified. Now, chapter two begins with almost a replay of the first chapter. God summons his angels to a court which is signified by the phrase, present themselves. And then again, God only addresses Satan. Again, he's the accuser. He's like the prosecuting attorney. That's the role he's playing in this divine courtroom. And God asks Satan what he's been about. And the question is meant to be a dig, because God knows precisely what Satan has been doing. And he's bringing up the question in order to get Satan to admit that he failed. Satan made an oath last week. Surely he will curse you to his face if you take everything he owns away from him. And that's not what Job did at all. He's asking the question to point out the pain of failure. I mean, just like Caleb or Justin might ask my boys, how'd the Seahawks do yesterday, being 49er fans? Right? The question's not meant because they don't know. It's meant to bring up the fact that we were disappointed. This is divine trash talk. And what Satan said would happen surely didn't happen. But in fact, when Satan answers God, he actually answers in contracted verb forms. So like he's speaking super quickly in the Hebrew Due to the humiliation, he wants to get through this conversation, and he actually avoids answering the question directly. So God gets even more direct in verse three. The Lord said to Satan, "Have you considered my servant Job? Have you set your heart on Job? Because there's no one like him on the earth—a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil—and he still holds fast to his integrity." Although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And note particularly that word integrity. It's the word Tuma, which is the feminine form of the word Tob, as in Tobiah, which means God is good. The word carries this sense. Despite all you did to him, Job still believes I am good. And he's done nothing wrong. It's actually the same word that's used to describe Job in one one as blameless. The point is Job didn't sin against God. As Satan said he would. Even though Satan made it appear. With great evidence that God was the one that was actually attacking Job. Even though. All this looked like God was afflicting Job for no reason. Job did not turn on God. Satan failed, is what God is saying. To which Satan responds then, Okay, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give in exchange for his life. The phrase skin for skin is like a quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. This for that. I'll give you some skin... In order to save my own skin. Satan's suggesting that Job would willingly sacrifice the skin of his children. And everything else that he possesses. In order to save his own skin. This is clarified in the following phrase. Where Satan says, all that a man gives he will give in exchange for his life. Satan is saying, he, he was only allowed to scratch the surface of Job. Only the surface of what Job really cared about. Because he was only allowed, he wasn't allowed to afflict Job himself. He could only scratch the surface of Job's skin. In other words, what he's saying is, that last trial didn't prove a thing. It just proves actually that Job is selfish. So he suggests in verse 5, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh And he will curse you to his face. Right? If you want to truly test what Job truly worships, attack what he truly loves. Attack himself. Job's self. And it's really important that we understand Satan's philosophy here. Satan believes, at heart, all men are just self-worshippers. Therefore, worship is merely transactional, a situation of you give me this or I'll give you this and you give me that. So a person goes to their fertility, God, and they offer up a sacrifice. I will give you this sacrifice if you, God, give me a baby. I will pay for this indulgence and God will grant me, my relatives, freedom from purgatory. I'll give this money to the church, and God will give me health, wealth, and prosperity. says That's how the world system works. At heart, people only worship you, God, because of what you give them. At heart, what they really care about is themselves. This is the way politics works in our world. You scratch my back, I will scratch yours. And this is how the world works. In direct contrast to how God works. And God, who doesn't need anything, not only loves his creatures, gave them life so that they might know him, but even when they rebelled against him, turned their back on him, he paid the ultimate price by giving up his only son in order to rescue those enemies from their sin that they justly deserve. Yes, this is how the world works, but it's not how God works. And those who truly worship God don't live for themselves any longer, but for him who died on their behalf. They live for God. This isn't the mindset of a true worshiper. The true worshiper doesn't presume God owes him anything. In fact, like Job, he acknowledges he doesn't deserve a thing. There's no right to anything. We came into this world naked and we will leave this world. And we have no right to have anything in between. But being the quintessential self-worshipper... Satan can only envision that this is what really motivates God's worshipers. At the core, what they're really wanting is just more for themselves. They don't really worship God. And this, I think, is true of unbelievers as well. Most unbelievers, they look at Christianity or any other religion, they just say, well, it's, it's a benefit to help them get through life. But at the heart... Of every man, they're just selfish. And this is precisely why agape love is such a powerful testimony to unbelievers. Because again, agape love, biblical love, means doing what's best for another person regardless of the cost to yourself. It flies in the face of what unbelievers inherently assume. Really, the best apologetic to Christianity is love. If you want to give a defense for the Christian faith, love people with inexplicable love. And this, this is truly courageous evangelism. Richard Wernbrand, the author of Torture for Christ, wrote. I've seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for the communists who would imprison them. This is humanly inexplicable, he writes. It is the love of Christ poured out into one's heart when unbelievers see selfless love that is the greatest testimony because they can't assume that anybody functions selflessly they think like Satan thinks I mentioned this anecdote from Vermbrand last October in a sermon on Colossians 3 but it, it bears mentioning again he tells of one man who was sentenced to death, he was allowed to see his wife before being executed. And he says his last words to his wife were, you must know that I die loving those who kill me. They don't know what they do. And my last request of you is to love them too. Don't have bitterness in your heart because they killed your beloved one. We'll meet in heaven. He says these words impressed the officer of the secret police who had attended the discussion between the two. That officer later told me the story in prison where he had been sent for becoming a Christian. There is no more powerful apologetic than true biblical love because it proves, it undermines Satan's philosophy the philosophy that's inherent in every unbeliever but when God changes our hearts he changes us so that we would not live for ourselves any longer but for him second Corinthians 5:15 and as before God gives job into Satan's power with only one restriction he says only spare his life it brings us to job's faith being tested in verse 7. Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Satan brought a disease upon Job that covered his entire body. Like normally the the idiom would say from head to foot. But the writer goes out of his way to say from from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. The point is every part of Job was covered in painful boils. Satan is seeking to maximize pain. He's being merciless in contrast to God who's defined by mercy. In the later chapters of this book, Job describes his affliction in these details. In seven, five, it says the boils also bred worms. In 16.8, on account of his sores, it says his body was both swollen and emaciated. In 1917, it, it tells that the, the boils broke out within the body as well as without. And it made his breath even smell loathsome. says that it turned his skin black. His bones were filled with gnawing pains as if a fire burned in them. It's horrific. And you might be wondering, well, how long did it last? According to chapter 7, verse 3, it lasted for months. This wasn't just a few hours. It wasn't just a few days or weeks. It was for months excruciating pain now notice what he used for medicine a broken piece of pottery a piece of trash and we know it's trash because in the ancient world they used pottery for everything in the home but once it breaks what do you do to the pottery (laughs) you throw it away this also tells us where Job's at he's at the city dump this is clarified by the, the next phrase. He's among the ashes. And this is where the, the city trash was collected and burnt. It's where the outcasts live. Where the disease lived. And Job is Job lost everything. And he accepts it from God. Very similar to Christ. But we need to recognize that Christ, unlike Job, took that pain and loss willingly. He chose to leave his father's throne above. He chose to, to take on flesh. He chose to be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. To be crucified on behalf of his enemies. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we have seen him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. Carried our sorrows. Yet we have him stricken. Smitten by God. Afflicted. In other words... He deserved what he had. He was struck by God, and he was struck by God. As it says, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It's by his wounds that we're healed. We could stand in awe of the amazing agony that Job went through, but Job experienced all that unwillingly. Christ did so willingly for you. Because He loves you. This brings us to Job's faith being proved. Verse 9, it says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? See, as before, despite the intensity and length of the suffering, Job passes the test. He holds fast to his integrity. He doesn't give in to the temptation. He doesn't curse God as Satan said. He surely would. And even his wife is baffled. And really his wife is Playing the role of Satan here. Or I think better, she's playing the part of Eve, who was used by Satan to tempt Adam into eating the forbidden fruit. And at the outset, Job's response back to her might might appear rather harsh. But he says, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. But you can see he's actually quite gentle with her because he doesn't call her a fool. He actually assumes that she's not a fool. She's just been temporarily drawn into falling. He he corrects her suggestion like a good leader and just leads her back to biblical truth. He doesn't get self-defensive. He doesn't get drawn into an argument or a fight with her. He just reminds her of what is true. And the example of Job in this interaction just gives us insight into why his family was the way it was. the, The children take their cues from their parents. Job's correction of his wife proves his integrity. That he doesn't worship himself, but he worships God. Notice his words. Shall we indeed accept good and not accept adversity? I mean, Job doesn't fit with Satan's philosophy of life. He recognizes that his integrity is not ultimately connected with his well being. Just because he's good doesn't mean that he deserves anything. It doesn't mean that he should be prevented from harm just because he loves God and keeps his commandments. He doesn't assume his blamelessness warrants anything from God. He assumes he doesn't deserve anything. And so if we have no problem accepting the blessings he's given, with, given to us, then we should be okay if he so chooses to bring us adversity as well. There's not an ounce of entitlement, not an ounce of presumption. And really, this is this is the same mindset that should characterize all of us who are Christians. If you recall in our our study of First Timothy, in fact, flip to First Timothy chapter six, Paul in his rebuke of the false teachers, or I'd say contrasting, he exhorts Timothy to not be like the false teachers, and he writes this in verse six, First Timothy six six. Godliness actually is a means of gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world. It almost sounds like he's citing Job here. We brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. Paul's saying, don't be like the false teachers who see Christ as a means of gain. Don't pursue Christ because you want more things for yourself as a means of more esteem, to gain more material possessions, to be respected. Don't pursue Christ as a means of gain for stuff. But it's okay to pursue Christ as a means of gain if you're willing to give up everything for Him. Right? Remember what he says in Philippians chapter 3, I consider everything as loss for the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Him. He gave up everything because he wants the gain that comes from Christ's righteousness. He's not seeking materialistic gain. That's why he says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we should be content. The author of Hebrews also writes, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the comment at the end of verse 10, in all this Job did not sin with his lips, really sets up the rest of the book. Despite all the affliction, all the temptation, Job remained steadfast in his faith. But it's through engaging with worldly wisdom that's what eventually gets him to overstate his case and to sin with his lips. And this begins with the arrival of his three friends in verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. The fact that each came from his own place tells us that news has spread. People have heard what happened to Job. And these men are concerned. And so they actually decide together to make an appointment to come together to minister to Job. To sympathize with him and to comfort him. The word sympathize literally means to shake the head. It's to to give an outward expression of grief. And the the second objective is to, to comfort him. It means to offer counsel, to provide strength for the soul. So their intent is to comfort him externally and also internally. To bring him peace. To help him... Come to grips with what's happened, but notice what it says in verse twelve. It says, "When they lifted up their eyes at a distance, they did not recognize him." Now, this is a very important word because it actually explains what's what's going on in the rest of the chapter, and really in the rest of the book. It, It doesn't mean that they didn't know it was Job, because look at how they respond. They when they see him, they raised their voices and wept. Each of them tore his robe. They threw dust on their heads, toward the sky. They do this because they see that it is Job. The, the word conveys more than just visual recognition. It, it carries this additional idea of acknowledgement, acceptance. And the, the words used uh, other places in Genesis, when, a, when an item is brought to a person and they say, is this yours? The person says, oh yeah, that's mine. They they recognize it. They accept it. They acknowledge it. Or you could think of the term like uh, the United States government now recognizes that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It doesn't mean that, oh, now we can find it on the map. It means we're accepting it for what it is. We're giving it a a recognition of sorts. And the point here is that they aren't really paying attention to Job but themselves just think where's Job? he's sitting in the city dump silent among the ashes and they come in carrying on throwing all sorts of dirt in the air and ripping their clothes crying out with loud voices extravagant wailing and all these are expressions of grief and they're they're in total disconnect with Job. Even after all their carrying is o- carrying on is over, notice what it says. They sat down on the ground with him for 7 days and 7 nights with no one speaking a word to him. It doesn't mean they didn't say anything. They just didn't talk to him. They didn't know what to say. When they when they finally realized the horrific tragedies that, is, that have faced this man, they were dumbfounded. And they weren't going to talk until Job first talks. They didn't know what to say. They don't recognize Job and that they don't see him rightly, nor do they therefore respond rightly to his suffering. See, again, their strategy was essentially this. When they saw him, They would do what was typical in those cultures to sympathize, to mourn. And so they put a big show of mourning to demonstrate their sympathy. And they thought that then this would open up a door for them to find out what really happened. They could then use their collective wisdom together to find out why did all this stuff happen to Job. And then they can save the day and go home comforted having solved the problem the dilemma and Job's friends essentially function like Satan would expect them to right they're comforting and sympathizing ultimately for themselves they're proving that they're good friends for themselves And this is clarified as their words turn to daggers against Job, as they accuse him of, of all sorts of falsehood. But they're not, they're not out there out of love. They're out there to, to, to figure out the problem. They're out there for themselves. They want to, to demonstrate to Job, yeah, we really care about you. So we're going to do what we need to do to show how sympathetic we are. But they don't have enough love to just see him and meet him where he's at and truly care about him. And again, it's proven because the moment Job speaks, they're ready to lay into him because they know what's really going on. They're not trying to help him, they're in it for themselves. They don't love Job, such as worldly wisdom. They want to be a comfort to Job, but they fail because of their inherent selfishness. All they knew was how to follow empty mourning rituals and to express sympathy. They want to provide words of counsel, but again, they're struck dumb. They have have no categories for how to comfort somebody who's lost so much. And so they only venture to offer their counsel after he speaks first. And when they do offer it, they're not very comforting. And we too can be tempted into their folly, folly when we... When we have friends that go through similar tragedies, maybe not similar tragedies, but just tragedies. Because it's deeply troubling to see anybody in distress, let alone somebody we love, somebody we respect and care about. And I think whenever we see somebody that we love hurting, what we want to do is we want to remove the pain. In some sense, often we want to be the hero. We want our friends to know we care. So we get flowers or a sympathy card. We attend a funeral. But often we're we're just... Those are just what culture would expect to happen. Not necessarily demonstrations of sincere love. Not that it's bad to do those things. So I guess it does does drive the question, well, what do you do when somebody faces the loss of a loved one? When they lose their job? When they find out they're dying of cancer? Well, the simple answer is to love the person. Recognize them. Love, don't think about proving your love for them. Just love them. Meet their needs. Ask yourself, what does this person need? Come to them where they're at. If they're silent, be silent. If they're crying, weep with those who weep. If, if, if they're asking for counsel, offer counsel. Just really love them. Don't focus on proving your love to them because it's not about you. If you really want to care for a person, focus on the other person. That's biblical love. And I think this goes beyond caring for those in the midst of grief. Right? Loving, <clears throat> loving others means caring for others. So like in, in teaching, it's not if we love somebody, we're not just seeking to impart our understanding. We're not just... We're seeking to help that person learn something they don't know. The goal is not to prove what we know. It's not about us. It's about helping the other person, which means you've got to kind of know where to meet them at. Where, they, where, where is the need? When offering counsel, seek to understand a situation before diving in with, to prove how wise you are, how much Bible verses you, are, you know. The point isn't to prove yourself. The point is to love the person. And when practicing practicing hospitality, just focus on the people, how how to comfort them, how to provide a warm place to be, rather than trying to prove how good a cook you are, how nice your decorations are. Focus on them, not about proving yourself sincere biblical love is the antidote to all of Satan's poisons. Death, decay, division, disease. You want to know how to help somebody in the midst of tragedy? Just love them. Biblically love them. And you don't need to wait for a tragedy to start loving people like this. You can start today. And so when the tragedy does strike, they'll know this person really loves me. They're not just trying to prove something because they've always loved me. I close with 1 John chapter 4. The apostle writes this. And send His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. Father, we do confess that we are... Prone to selfishness, even after being born again. But Lord, we want to we want to die to ourselves and to seek to love one another even as you have loved us. That we would prove the reality of your Spirit within us. That we really have been transformed, and that evidence is seen in. Not thinking of ourselves. God, cause us to be a loving church. Full of loving individuals. So that we would be a good testimony. A, a testimony argued against. To the surrounding world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.